Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I found a very interesting story uh, the other day in The Federalist. And uh, 16 fake news stories reporters have run since Trump won is the uh, headline of the the article that's of the column that's in the Federalist. And it's written by Daniel Payne, who uh, writes not only for the Federalist, but also has a very popular blog. And the name of that is trialofthecentury.net, trialofthecentury.net. And I, I follow Daniel on, uh, on his blog. Now, I just want to read a couple of paragraphs, a few sentences from the opening of uh, Daniel's story in The Federalist. We're in the midst of an epidemic of fake news. There's no better word to describe it than epidemic insofar as it fits the epidemiological, whatever that word is, model from the centers of disease control. This phenomenon occurs when an agent and susceptible hosts are present in adequate numbers and the agent can be effectively conveyed from a source to the susceptible host. The agent in this case is hysteria over Trump's presidency and the susceptible hosts are a slipshod, reckless, and breathtakingly gullible media class that spread the hysteria around like, well, a virus. It is difficult to adequately sum up the breadth of this epidemic, chiefly because it keeps growing day after day, even hour after hour. The media continue to broadcast, spread, promulgate, publicize, and promote fake news on an industrial scale. It has become a regular part of our news cycle, not distinct from or extraneous to, but a part of it. Embedded within the news apparatus as a spoke is embedded in a bicycle wheel. Daniel Payne, good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me here. We're glad to be here. Yeah, 16. And you know, as I read through the list of 16, I started to recognize them one after another after another. And they made headlines. And uh, the first one that you um, that you uh, get at is the... Spike, uh, supposed spike in transgender suicide rates, and that ran in early November. Let's talk about that. Yeah, well, I should just point out at first that, that tearing down the number of fake news events to 16 was itself something of, a, of an heroic accomplishment. Uh, you know, otherwise I might have been able to do two or three hundred, but, but nobody would read that length of an article. But uh, the, the, the first one that I came across, and they, they were listed in chronological order, was um, this report that flew around uh, the Internet and social media uh, just after Trump's win, um, and it claimed that uh, there were uh, numerous transgender suicides uh, by, by teenagers. A bunch of t- uh, transgender teenagers had committed suicide in the wake of Trump's victory in November. Um, now, this took off. Uh, people tweeted it out. Uh, you know, some journalists and media types tweeted it out. It was reported on a number of, uh, of websites. And uh, it just went nuts, and people were holding it up as this example of, of how awful Trump's win was, how this, uh, you know, sent these vulnerable people into this tailspin of despair and eventually suicide. Um, and then it pretty quickly became clear that there was absolutely no evidence to back this up, um, that the rumor had spread far and wide without any sort of uh, corroborating evidence whatsoever. Um, and the, the, the few people that are the people that wrote about it and shared it and tweeted about it, uh, you know, eventually walked back their statements and said, oh, actually, we're, we're not sure that this is really real. We can't verify it. Uh, but by that point, the damage had been done, and nobody really paid attention to those corrections at all. So it was a, a textbook kind of crystal clear case of, of how fake news works, especially in the age of Trump. And, you know, Daniel, the the view of many people has been that fake news is really the 
is owned by uh, non-professional journalists with an agenda to drive on social media. Not the case, because major news organizations, as you point out in your column, in your article, major news organizations were the source of much of this fake news. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have, you have folks at the New York Times, at New York Magazine, the Washington Post, Politico, uh, you know, various uh, large magazines and newspapers around the United States uh, that are, are propagating this information on kind of an industrial scale. Uh, you know, leading up to the election, there was this this popular idea of fake news as a, you know, the the province of some, uh, you know, a bunch of bloggers in apartments somewhere in Southern California writing stuff up that was totally fake and getting rich off of it. And that phenomenon was real. But in the in the wake of the election, in the months that have followed, you've seen that, that mantle of fake news shift from sort of anonymous nobodies, uh, you know, maybe working out of their parents' basement, to, to really the, the, the legacy media that we're all familiar with, the newspapers, uh, Internet uh, publications and blogs. So it's really shifted to a much more professional and, and sort of, uh, you know, accepted medium, and it's been spread much farther that way. We don't have time to go through all 16. We probably have time for maybe two or three more. But talk to us about the 27-cent foreclosure story. Yes, yeah, so... Um, shortly after uh, the election, it was probably about uh, three weeks after after Trump won, um, an essay was published by Lorraine Wollert that claims that um, the nomination of the of Trump's nomination for the Secretary of the Treasury uh, had once overseen a company that had foreclosed on an, uh, I think an elderly widow because she she missed a twenty seven cent in her mortgage payment. Now, as you might imagine, this this story went absolutely viral. It was retweeted all over the place. It was shared uh, 17,000 times on Facebook. It was shared by a journalist from the New York Times, NBC News, the Associated Press. It just went nuts and took off. It was reported on by a lot of other websites besides. And then eventually it came out, of course, after the fact and after it had gone viral, that, uh, in fact, the woman was never foreclosed on, um, and she never lost her home, and it wasn't uh, Newton's bank that actually brought the suit against her. So it was it was absolutely uh, a case of where the author of the piece had not verified anything, had not checked any of her facts, had just gone straight to press with these sensationalist claims, and it took off and, and really kind of became part of the, the political consciousness for uh, you know, and I, I imagine you'll still be able to find people who believe it. Oh, I'm sure. It went terribly viral. I'm sure. Now, we, in about 30 seconds, share with us what may be the most famous or infamous of the fake news stories, and that is Zeke Miller from Time Magazine reporting that on this first afternoon in the Oval Office, Donald Trump removed the bust of Martin Luther King Jr. Right. Zeke Miller happened to be in the Oval Office at the time, took a look around and couldn't find uh, the bust of Martin Luther King that had been there before, uh, asked a person or two if they had seen it, and they said they hadn't. And he considered that satisfactory enough evidence to claim that Trump had removed it. And that claim went nuts on social media and caused a big flurry, and a lot of people were upset. And then it just eventually turned out that he was wrong. He just hadn't seen it. It was behind the door. And he eventually issued a correction that, you know, of course, nobody read. Well, I, I just found this uh, article to really be fascinating, and there's 16 of them, folks. If you, you get the Federalist, or go to Federalist.com, and you have a look at the February 6th edition, 2017, you will see the uh, 16 fake news stories reporters have run since Trump won 
and it's by Daniel Payne, whose blog is trialofthecentury.net. Daniel, thank you so much for the time. We'll call you again. Roy, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. All the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about opioids. Let's talk about fentanyl. And we'll do it a little differently to what I've been hearing. It's fairly standard fare in media. Governments in Canada and the United States, from what we're told, are about to pass regulations limiting the amount of opioids which can be prescribed. This in order, again we're told, to combat the addictions and suicides reported. The issue, though, as I've been reading and as I've heard, as I've talked to people, is that it's rarely the patient who takes prescribed opioids to control torturous chronic pain. And uh, the word torturous I've heard more than once. It's rarely that patient who is a problem, but it's precisely that patient who may be harmed if regulations require the patient to take less in the way of opioid medication or will maybe not get any. That's the fear as well. Professor David Yerlink joins me. He's the head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Toronto. He's a professor in the Departments of Medicine, Pediatrics, and Health Policy at the University of Toronto and a key advisor on opioid policy to governments. We've talked once before, uh, Dr. Erling. Thank you very much for coming back on the show. My pleasure, Ryan. I looked at um, a column you wrote in the Globe and Mail in 2016, Opioids, Whatever Happened to First Do No Harm. And, and you write, Despite the best of intentions, we flooded North American homes with opioids purer and often stronger than heroin. These drugs increasingly fell into the wrong hands, destroying young lives and countless families in the process. Put a face to that for us, please. Well, I mean, there are many facets to this crisis, but one of the truths is that, um, you know, a lot of pain medicines ended up in medicine cabinets, uh, and uh, it was, you know, not necessarily the patients themselves, who, although many clearly were, um, but, you know, a curious 17-year-old or 21-year-old, you know, would try the pills because they were there and they figured they'd be safe because they came from a pharmacy. And that sort of scenario, the sort of experimentation with, you know, what were seemingly innocuous pills from a drugstore uh, for some people sent them down a pathway that uh, was very difficult to climb out of. Are there any numbers on how many people this would have happened to? How many cases of of real significant health harm have taken place because of this scenario? Well, because of that specific scenario, no. I mean, in Canada, we don't have very good stats on this. Um, I can tell you, you know, this is speculative, but Somewhere in the vicinity of 25 or perhaps 30,000 people have died from opioids over the last 20 or so years. Um, that's going to include people who, you know, um, uh, were addicted and would have been addicted if doctors hadn't changed their prescribing practices as we have. Um, it includes people who, you know, developed addiction as the result of therapy. And it includes people like the like the teens and, and 20-somethings I described to you earlier. But we really don't know. That's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just a tombstone, as it were. There are many, many other ways these drugs can harm people. So is this a result of prescribed drugs or a result of a combination of prescribed opioids and opioids bought on street corners? That would be all comers. So that's going to be prescribed opioids used appropriately, prescribed opioids used inappropriately, and illicit drugs, heroin, fentanyl, and that kind of thing. All right. You, you wrote also in the column, another unfortunate truth is that even when our patients with chronic pain took these pills, as we instructed, we caused far more harm than we anticipated. Many, by some estimates, 10%, spiraled into addiction, even though we had told 
been told this would only happen rarely. So even if that 10% number is accurate, and that's the big number, that means does that mean that 90% of the patients who are using opioids as they're supposed to, as it's prescribed, are doing just fine, and the opioids are doing for them what they're supposed to do, and that is keep the quality of life reasonable? No, it doesn't, because you've sort of the assumption there is actually sort of a tacit implication in what you suggested is people are either addicted or they're doing okay. Uh, and it's very, very important to understand that the that addiction is not uh, not nearly uh, the only harm that these drugs can cause. So what else happens? Uh, you know the patient. Patient says to you, Dr. Yerlink, I have pain, chronic pain that I cannot live with. My doctor has tried all sorts of possibilities, all sorts of combinations of medicines. Nothing works for me other than the opioid medication. It allows me to function, allows me to live my life in a, in a positive way. Take that away from me, and I'm going to be a useless human being, or I'll be somebody who will get onto alcohol or go and get street drugs. You've heard that, I'm sure. Oh, I hear it all the time on, you know, in the media and on Twitter and from patients themselves. I mean, and it's a really important message. Doctors shouldn't just bat that kind of uh, anecdote away. We hear that there are tens of thousands of people, if not more, in Canada who have that sort of story, and, and they'll furthermore say, listen, I'm not an addict. I'm a legitimate pain patient. I take my meds as directed. I don't go to multiple doctors and pharmacies, and I sure as heck don't crush up and inject my pills. And so I'm worried that when we talk about taking, you know, taking opioid doses down, that I'll be forced onto doses that make me suffer. Uh, and uh, you know, why should I be made to suffer because of someone else's bad decision? That, that, it's a very, very important um, scenario. What do you say to that patient who now tells you that story, who presents that case, and who has a case to present and is concerned because of what he or she has been hearing and reading, that governments and regulation, regulators are going to say, you're only allowed to have X number of milligrams of opioids, which falls significantly below what they're using now, which gives them ample and, I think, justifiable fear that their pain is no longer going to be managed? Excellent question. So first thing is that no, no one's going to be prescriptive in what happens. There are guidelines that are coming out to help doctors care for pain patients better. But let me tell you what I would say. If I had a patient sitting across from me, I'd say to them this. I'd say, listen, I hear what you're saying and I believe you and I know that you are fearful and frustrated, but it's, it's really important to understand that the goal of using lower doses of opioids has very little to do with addiction. It's about trying to improve the quality of pain care. And, and, and it has its, the backstory is this. You know, we used to think that when people still had pain, despite being on opioids, the right thing to do is just increase the dose to overcome it, right? More pain, need more medicine. That's extremely simplistic reasoning. reasoning and some uh, doctors, unfortunately, haven't quite let it go. What we now know is that the benefits of opioids do not increase at higher doses, but, but the side effects do. And so, and critically, this is really important, we're learning that the side effects of opioids include things like depression and even pain itself. And so when a patient on high-dose opioids hear, hears these things and with a doctor's help can you know, manage to very, very gradually taper down to lower doses, they're often amazed by how much better they feel. Their pain is better, their mood improves, they think more clearly, and they often have a better quality of life and quality of sleep. It's only in hindsight that they realize that the opioids weren't making their life better. They were making it worse. And, and it was a matter of physical dependence that sort of tricked them into believing that, that this was a benefit. It was, it's a harm masquerading as a benefit. All right. I, one doctor I asked about this 
and when I prepped for this hour that we're doing, and I'm not going to keep you for an hour, <laughs> but uh, one doctor I, I spoke to um, said to me that if you don't, I hope I get this correctly, if you don't intercede with pain receptors in the brain and you don't intercede in a way to really shut down the pain receptor, it is going to be responsive to lower and lower amounts of pain, measurable pain. So if you don't have enough, in this case opioids, to shut down the pain receptors, they will become more and more sensitive. It's simply not true. I'm not sure who told you that. But it was an the, MD. Pardon me? It was an MD. Oh, listen, as I said in a moment ago, there are plenty of physicians who, uh, who have, I mean, to be very blunt about this, views about the role of opioids in the treatment of chronic pain that, uh, that not only aren't supported by data, they're, 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 they're contravened by what we know. Uh, and that little riff you've just uh, delivered uh, has no factual basis at all. You know, the, 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 what is very clear uh, is that people quickly become physically dependent on opioids. Um, it's not addictive. It's, just, it's an abnormal adaptive response. Their body gets used to the presence of the drug. And so when they go without the medicine or the doses drop too quickly, which you should never do, um, they get sick. And they understandably, when they take the pill again, they feel better. They, they come to believe they need their medicine. They need the medicine because they have been on it, not because it's helping them more than harming them, which is actually the key goal of therapy. All right, Dr. Erling, we have about 30 seconds. Where are we going? Is there something on the market that is a that is a, an acceptable substitute that is non-opioid for dealing with pain? Are we headed in that direction? Where will I, we be five years from now? I sure hope so. I, 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 you know, uh, what we, we do need uh, better drugs for the treatment of pain. We need safer drugs. I mean, of all the opioids, of all the, the agents out there, opioids are probably the class of drugs that has the most unfavorable balance of um, harms uh, versus benefits. You know, they do work in the right person, but at, at low doses. I think that down the road, if a company can produce a, a class of drugs that is, you know, relatively safe and relieves pain, um, people will be a lot better off and that company will do quite well itself. Appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Pain. And chronic pain and severe chronic pain. The uh, invisible, unwelcome companion for far too many people, and particularly with an aging population, I think that's going to become more and more of a reality. And for decades now, doctors have prescribed opioid pain meds, and they have kept and helped some people, as I've read, read an article just uh, the other day. They've maintained sanity, was the position taken by one patient Another one said that uh, living without the opioids would expose him to torture. And one of the patients who was interviewed in that article I read was a doctor, not self-prescribing, but it was a doctor who uh, had said that he understands so much of the, the argument against opioids, but he continues to use them on a daily basis as prescribed by his physician because they provide him with the pain relief that he requires. And he said this interesting point that was made, unless you live with that level of pain, you're a theorist. If you live with that level of pain, you understand. Dr. Fiona Campbell is the president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society. She's an anesthesiologist in the Department of Anesthesia and Pain Medicine at SickKids Hospital in Toronto, an associate professor at the University of Toronto and co-director of the Pain Center at SickKids. Dr. Campbell, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me, Roy. The, the life of the patient who is living with chronic severe pain 
It starts the moment the person wakes up. Maybe it wakes the person up, and it's there all day long. The only thing the patient will say helps is the opioid pain meds. And now that patient has been hearing time and again that it's going to have to be reduced. The dosage will be reduced. Doctors are increasingly unwilling to prescribe opioids, and that patient becomes very concerned. And among the things that I've read, uh, people saying, well, I'll, I'll become an alcoholic. I'll go to the streets and get whatever I need there, and worse. How does this all fit into your perspective as the incoming uh, president of the Can- Canadian Pain Society, and you deal with kids with pain? Can you put it all together for us, please? Uh, now, that is a huge question to put it all together. But I know. I I'm like, sorry. <laughs> I would like to begin by saying I do agree with Dr. Yearlink that there are so many facets to this. Uh, I do acknowledge that the opioid crisis is real, um, but we really mustn't forget the impact that chronic pain has on people and their families. Uh, And currently, I would like to point out that currently many are terrified um, for fear of losing an effective treatment that allows them to hold jobs, have some comfort, and have some meaningful uh, improvements in their quality of life. So um, chronic pain is a complex disease, uh, and patients are often treated in a way that does not recognize this. And one thing that I think is very important to to do is to distinguish between uh, chronic pain and acute pain. Acute pain is our natural warning system. It's our biological warning system, whereas chronic pain, on the other hand, is really a complex interplay between the brain and our malfunctioning nerve pathways that can occur and last long after normal tissue healing. So for example, we know that 15% of patients after surgery, the same proportion after accidents, um, and and, uh, also associated with medical conditions, uh, can end up with chronic pain, and chronic pain can even occur without apparent injury. About 20% of the population have chronic pain, of whom 5% have significant disability with reduced quality of life. So, for example, I heard Chad's story um, uh, about his wife, and I can't imagine how difficult their lives uh, are and uh, will continue to be. Um, And there will be significant impact, uh, as with all chronic pain, on sleep, on mood, uh, with uh, increased rates of depression and suicide, um, ability to work. So a quarter of people with chronic pain lose jobs. They can't participate in their hobbies and sports. They often um, stop seeing their friends and they become socially isolated. And it's complicated by the fact that you've just mentioned that pain is invisible. Um, It's also an ordinary, pain is also an ordinary part of life. So some don't take it, chronic pain, seriously and uh, are unsympathetic. And these are all things that uh, really contribute to the pain experience. So, 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 So emotions are very much part of the equation then. Oh, yes. I I mean, pain actually is defined in terms of both a a physical and an emotional um, phenomenon. I mean, when you think about the emotional impact of pain, it is very real. And we know that the pathways in the brain that are responsible for processing pain are very close to the area and sort of very integrated with the areas that process emotions. So as pain goes up, emotions can go up. And as emotions go up, um, anxiety, uh, 
you know, worry, depression, uh, frustration, as those things go up, it can also drive up pain, which brings me to um, a point about treatment. Uh, a lot of the conversation, most, and it is the focus, the opioid crisis, I completely understand is the focus of uh, the conversation today, but the treatment of pain is not just about drugs. And even the bit that is about drugs is not just about opioids. So when you have a complicated disease, there isn't going to be a simple treatment and cure is unusual. So typically current treatment in in the modern era among pain experts, current treatment focus is on rehabilitation. So ideally supervised by an interprofessional team of doctors, nurses, psychologists, speaking of mood, rehab therapists, such as physiotherapists and occupational therapists who can uh, help with uh, treatments that improve function. And we know that by improving function, we can reduce pain. But for some people, um, those treatments aren't enough and they need some medical therapy in order to support the psychological treatments and the physical uh, treatments um, that are required. And so there are a variety of uh, medications that can be used for different pain conditions, of which opioids is but one. What? uh, I'm just... Something came to mind, and I should have thought of this earlier, but it's talked about quite regularly. And I've had aired programs where, we've, we've, for example, we talked to the father of a three-year-old who had tremendous issues, great issues, problems with with seizures. And, uh, and that little child was given marijuana extract oil, and the seizures disappeared. And we hear time and again about marijuana being a, a pain drug, an effective pain drug, or one option where does it does it fit fit into the equation at all? Or? Yeah. Um, well, that's a bit of a load. Or is it a sidebar? Is it a sidebar issue? Uh, it's not really a sidebar. I mean, I think when we're talking about medications for pain control, we really have to evaluate uh, benefit mm-hmm. and risk, uh, and being um, compassionate uh, for the patients. Um, whom we serve, Um, marijuana, there are now what we call cannabinoid receptors within the body, just like there are opioid receptors within the body uh, that are involved in modulating pain. And so there may be, as there certainly are for some um, conditions, uh, a role for uh, the cannabinoids. Uh, Pain is one of them, but we need to again balance risk and benefit. Uh, And seizure disorder is another one uh, where uh, seizures have been, um, uh, or marijuana cannabinoids have been shown to be effective for seizure disorders. And likewise, they will be helpful for some pain conditions. But uh, in parallel with the opioids, particularly in my um, group of patients, so the uh, children and teens, um, we need to be very mindful about the impact on medications on right. the uh, developing brain. What I'm, what I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. What, what I'm hearing from what I'm hearing from Professor Yerling and what I hear, I'm hearing from you is that, uh, and particularly hearing from you, is that each situation, each patient, is a very individual concern. There is, there's no one size fits all. That being said, what do you say to the patient who's listening right now? who hears you and, and, and is attentively listening to every word you're saying, but tuning out whenever the suggestion may become um, even marginally 
mentally visible, if I can use that metaphor, tunes out the moment met- opioids are not part of the picture. I don't hear opioids. Yeah. I can't hear you anymore. Okay. So, um, and I know that this is a very real problem. So to cut to the... Um, Chase, uh, we know that uh, we have this sort of catch-22, right, where the opioid debate is engendering really strong emotion for both sides. So um, uh, access to opioids versus limiting access to opioids. And I do, we do know already uh, that there are disturbing trends emerging uh, in terms of limiting access. So for those patients who are listening that you just mentioned, um, we know that some physicians are refusing to prescribe opioids at all for fear of reprisal from professional bodies. Um, So we also uh, are hearing of suicides by pain patients for whom opioids have been um, uh, cut off. Uh, And we know that patients are suffering from acute opioid withdrawal presenting to emergency departments. And we know that some patients who require opioids for pain or for whom they have been perceived to be helpful for their pain are seeking illicit opioids to treat their pain. So um, we know that there are vulnerable people living with chronic pain for whom opioids uh, do reduce their pain and importantly improve function and quality of life. And uh, I feel most passionately that they must not be marginalized. Um, and uh, what what I do know is that there are efforts underway uh, to um, uh, improve uh, treatments for chronic pain and uh, develop some strategies to imp- uh, reduce the likelihood of people getting chronic pain and, and then strategies to address chronic pain. Um, there are new opioid guidelines coming, and I know that Professor Jurek spoke a lot about uh, the doses and the dose limits and so on. Um, there are many working. There are many people working to advocate uh, that uh, patients who need them, who are functioning despite their pain, um, on doses of opioids, uh, that uh, there's going to be a compassionate approach. And we know that Minister Philpot has spoken uh, to the fact that we need a compassionate approach to uh, treating pain. So the Ministry of uh, the Ontario Ministry of Health, for example, uh, is developing a standard for um, uh, how to prescribe opioids for pain uh, that we hope to certainly have in some compassionate recommendations uh, for patients for whom that they are enabling them to uh, have significant improvements in, in their quality of life. All right. Okay, so the person who stops hearing you when they feel that the word opioid has been removed from their treatment regimen, they don't hear you anymore. Now it's fear and panic that sets in. So what are they, what, where do you think we're headed? Well, uh, um, unless we can uh, intervene earlier to improve the way that we assess and treat pain, then those patients are going to, um, they, they, if they feel that they're on their own, they don't have the treatments that they perceive to have been helpful uh, for a long period of time, they maybe uh, go down some of those routes that I just mentioned before uh, in terms of um, uh, choosing not to live, um, seeking illicit opioids, um, getting more depressed, uh, going into acute uh, opioid withdrawal because they're no longer getting their opioids. So I think that we're really um, 
moving into an area that is uh, incredibly in, inhumane for patients who are already on opioids. So as I mentioned before, I think uh, whatever resolution we have to recommendations for prescribing must uh, include compassion and options. Uh, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but sometimes politicians and the world of politics, they make decisions based on what appears to be best for the world of politics. And I just hope that when the decision is made, after appropriate research and speaking to you, Dr. Campbell, also speaking to patients, I understand that patients were originally excluded from a conference on pain, which to me sounds ridiculous and dangerous. But I hope the decision is made based on on appropriate information and on that, that terrifying pathway that you describe, pain, social isolation, depression, suicide. Yes, um, I, I hope, I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, all the important players, including most importantly, patients, healthcare providers, law uh, makers, policy makers are all going to work together to um, come to a solution that improves um, the lives of patients with uh, pain, but also uh, leads to reductions in harm. And uh, we don't know exactly what that is going to look like, but I do believe we need improved pain care that is not just about the drugs, but that drugs is a, a, an integral part of that. Right. We need better pain education. Vets get five times more pain training than medical students do. And at this point, I'm sorry, I have to jump in, and it's not my fault. It's the clock's fault. We've come to the end of the hour. But I hope you'll come back on the program. I'd like to talk about this again. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. And um, uh, really, my heart goes out to patients who uh, live with chronic pain. You sound like a great doc. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so Dr. much. Bye-bye. Dr. Fiona Campbell. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We're talking to Michael, started to talk to Michael in the last hour, pulled over to talk to us about the issue of opioids and pain. And Michael, uh, thank you. We got your number. We called you back. I wanted to speak with you. I wanted to hear your story. Please please tell us what happened. What, what, what happened to you? Well, sir, um Due to a, a workplace accident, I, I had my legs crushed uh, back oh, in 98, went through extensive rehab in which, in fact, opioids w- was the last resort after, I want to guesstimate, 40 to 50 different types of medications. And um, as we crossed each one off, it became more apparent that, that an opioid was going to be uh, what was going to be needed, and, and then yeah, after all these years, uh, finally was then diagnosed with uh, a, a disease, or uh, it's called RST, is reflex sympathetic disorder, in which the nerve endings are um, sending signals that they shouldn't be, that the, the pain shouldn't be there. Um, I, I think they classify it as a phantom pain. Right. So when people um, lose a limb, for example, they'll feel the pain in the limb that's been amputated. Correct, and and that's a lot of people that end up with the, with severe injuries end up uh, with what's known as a, a CRPS, a complex regional pain syndrome, which uh, it, you were talking about diseases, uh, be, first time hearing about it. Um, 
there are pain diseases, but the opioid therapy uh, really, for me, didn't come until the very end when I became suicidal. Um, the doctors did not want to put me down that road. Uh, we tried everything possible. Now I've been on opioids for five or six years, and uh, it helps. It's not a cure-all, um, but I I don't think I would be alive today without them. Um, the pain was just too severe, and... Um, if they're taken away, I can't, I, I, I can't, I can't live like that. Um, that's just fact. Uh, so what I understand, what I understand is going to happen, is that, uh, and I like to research things before I go on the air with the subject. And this one was, I think, significantly important because of the numbers of people who are affected. And I only kept hearing one side of the story. Um. What I hear is they're going to have a maximum daily dosage. Now, this don't take this as gospel. This is what I've been able to find out. And I think we heard Dr. Yerling say something like that. There will be a maximum daily dosage that is permitted, um, which hopefully will be okay, but it's lower than what many people are receiving from their doctors now. What is frightening and what we heard from... I, I don't know whether it was Dr. Yearlink or Dr. Campbell. One of them said that some doctors are not prescribing opioids at all anymore because they're afraid that they'll be severely judged by regulatory agencies. So even though it's still perfectly acceptable, well, maybe not acceptable, but it's legal for doctors to provide opioids, they're not doing it because they're afraid for themselves, for their own professional well-being. That's insane. I don't believe that that's new, though, to be honest with it you. Probably, you know what? It probably isn't. It probably uh, isn't. Um, I, I, as I said, mine was a last resort. I don't yeah. know if it was because of my age at the time, being in my, my mid to late 20s. I'm not sure why, but... So I your feeling, not, Michael, Michael, your sense is they should have gone to the opioids a lot sooner. For myself, yeah. We, it, it took... It took a hospital visit for an attempted suicide Good due Lord. to pain for them to actually, uh, my team of doctors, not just one, to say, hmm, let's send this guy to a, a pain specialist who then looked at the entire picture from all the doctors and said, hold on a second, uh, let's, let's give this guy something so he can uh, function somewhat. Um, now, my, my medication, though, it, it is regulated. I have X amount of pills per month. I am not allowed to get any more, um, even if I go through them. Uh, I am drug tested every two months. Seriously? Yeah, I, I have to go through urination's uh, uh, screening this, through my family doctor. So I'm not sure how these drugs are making it to the street, to be honest with well, you. Well, they're being imported from other countries. That's, again, that's, those are stories that you find that they're being imported from other countries, and they're not necessarily what the same caliber that you would get here. Can I ask you to, could you, could I ask you to do one thing for us? Yeah. Would you explain what it's like to live with the kind of yeah. pain 
that makes you suicidal. What is that pain like? What is what what is the pain? I think you know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm asking yes, you. Yes, I, no. I can describe this, and, and unfortunately, your listeners still won't understand, um, unless they've been there. I got two types of pains. You have your aches, your joint pain, your arthritic pain, which is one thing. That can be very extreme on days. And then you have this nerve pain. Now, this nerve pain, if I'm to describe it, and what I've said to my doctors is take a, a, a nail. A roofing nail and put that in hot coals make that make that red hot now start jabbing yourself with it you lose your breath you you, you don't breathe you bend over in agony um, everything stops everything ceases and you pray to God that it ends and even the opioids sometimes don't help with that. If you got multiple different types of pain, for me I have the joint pain, it will trigger the nerve pain. If the joint pain increases, the nerve pain increases. Um, I, I don't know how to describe it except take the worst. What I've read is, uh, and I, I don't know, I'm not a lady, uh, it is actually worse than childbirth. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but for me, it's take my breath away, hold your breath, turn beet red, and just hope to God it ends. And and you want, you'll do anything to make it end. And this would and, happen. Um, this would happen every day to you. It happens in multiple days. I'm going to cry. Just I'm a 45 year old man, about to cry just thinking about it, because. It ruins your life. Um, I, yeah, I'm seeing a, psych, a psychiatrist. I have the medications for that. I currently take 22 pills a day. Yikes. And that includes three oxyneal, which is oxyset, but it, you can't crush it. So oxyneal is, uh, is what they prescribe me. You can't crush it and inject it. Um, that's oxy and then i have um also for breakthrough pain uh another dose of oxy that i can take three four times a day uh for when those episodes happen um but lost family uh you have to you have to get away from them because any types of stress uh it just triggers it and um so you you do you you take your yourself away from society um, and that again, that leads to the depression, just as the previous caller was saying, it is a vicious cycle. And, and unless that pain is controlled, you're not going to get rid of it. You have would you to like, would you, I, mediate I, I, it. I, I want to talk to you again, uh, cause there's, there's a lot to talk about here in this. Yeah. We'll have to get at this issue some more and I want to do it from the patient's perspective, but would you explain to us in the time we have left, yeah. why the hell would they say to you? You only have this many to last you for the month, and it doesn't matter if your pain becomes such that you're feeling suicidal. We're only going to give you X number for the month. Good luck to you, Michael. Why would they do I, that? Have they, has anybody explained that to you? Um, I haven't really. No, I haven't asked, to be honest with you. I get three oxyneal 20 milligrams 
I can take per day. And that's a long-lasting, non-crushable uh, ox, uh, uh, oxy. And But they did give me breakthrough pain oxy, which I can take uh, one to two tablets by mouth every four hours. Are you are you helped? Do you find and I, I have to do this fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah. Are you are you how much would you say your pain is reduced? How livable is your life when you take the maximum that you've been permitted? Cuz it doesn't sound to me like you're getting enough. Uh just just I'm just yeah. just my sense from your call. Uh how livable does your life become when you take the maximum? How much better are you? 20%, 30%, 50%, 80%? What would you say? You know, sir, that it, 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 that's a hard question because the pain varies yeah. every day. I'm going to say twenty to thirty percent. Oh my goodness! And I would, and and that's at max. Oh my goodness! Um, but that make that's livable for me. That's not oh, going to get you know me something? out for the day. That's going to get me off the couch for a couple hours. That's about it. Wow. Anybody else, it would floor them that amount of pain. Michael. And, and that's what happened. Pep sent me to the hospital. Michael. Yes, sir. We don't have a system where, please don't call me, sir. We, <laughs> we, 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 we don't have a system that is supposed to say to a patient, we're going to make you 20% better, maybe 30% better. We don't want it because we don't like the drug we're giving you, even though it's regulatory approved. We don't like to give it to you. We could give you enough, Michael, to make you 80% better, but we're not going to do that. We're only going to make you 20 or 30% better, and you better be thankful because we may have to deal with that. That's we, You and I are going to talk again. Yes, sir. Thank, thank you, please. Thank you for the call. Don't call me sir, please. I have to. You're my elder. Well, yeah, that's true, but you don't have to call me sir. <laughs> only if you're a politician, you have to call me sir, and that's when your hand's in my pocket, and their hands are in our pockets all the time. <laughs> Michael, you take good care. Yes, sir. All right. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Uh, we'll talk to Michael again. Oh. We're going to make you 20% better. We don't really want to make you 20% better, but we'll make you 20% better, 30%. And the last thing they tried to help him was, was the opioids, and then only when he was getting suicidal. How does that equate with health care? Somebody explain that to me. How is that health care? You know what that is? That's sitting in judgment. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So last weekend, we, you know, we talked to Charlotte about her 29-year-old daughter, Jessie. And the blood test was done on a Friday before Christmas. And uh, the results of the blood test were that Jessie should present herself to an ER immediately because her potassium levels were so low she was in danger of a heart attack. But even though they had that information on Friday... It never got to the family until Monday when Charlotte picked up the phone and got the voicemail on Monday evening after she'd left the hospital where her daughter was lying, suffering from the after effects of massive heart attacks. Two days later, Jesse would die. Had that information from that blood test gotten to the family on Friday or Saturday, because she had the heart attack on Sunday, there's every possibility Jesse would still be alive because they would have increased the potassium levels in her body, blood transfusion, whatever they would have had to do, and she could very well be alive today. Hospital harm, third leading cause of death in Canada and the United States. In 2014-15, 138,000 Canadian hospital patients suffered harm. That's 5.6% of all patients. One in eight resulted in death. And this information does not include harm committed to patients in hospitals in the province of Quebec. 
Kathleen Finley is the CEO and founder of the Center for Patient Protection. And she joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Kathleen, thank you very much. What, what, what was the motivation for you to begin the Center for Patient Protection? Good to be with you, Roy. Well, um, it came about after my shocking discovery of just an incomprehensible number of medical errors that were inflicted on my mother during her hospitalization six years ago. And um, I couldn't really understand why so many errors were happening to my mother. And, um, you know, I, what I did was, as I, I approached it in the usual way that I do things, I just did more research. And I discovered, shockingly, uh, as you said, that medical errors are the third leading cause of death in Canada and the U.S. They claim more lives every year than strokes, Alzheimer's, kidney disease, breast cancer, and plane, train, and car accidents combined. And they also add um, unnecessary billions of dollars in cost to our healthcare system. So they are a big problem. Um, and they are not treated um, as the national, really, emergency, healthcare emergency that they need to be. One of every 18 patients who's admitted into a hospital in Canada, again, this is excluding Quebec, they have their own statistics and they were in part of the study. But one of every 18 who's admitted to a hospital in Canada will be dealing with an antibiotic-resistant infection, experience a fracture from a fall, um, possibly suffer accidental lacerations during a medical procedure, or some other kind of unintended harm. Clearly, it's not intended, but it happens. And this report was put together uh, for and by the Canadian Patient Safety Institute, which published the report, along with the Canadian Institute for Health Information. This was for 2014-2015, 138,000 patients. And I believe this is the first time there was ever a report like this, Kathleen. Uh, it, it is, um, it's definitely something new in Canada. They have been doing this kind of thing in the United States um, quite a bit longer. Um, but the statistics really, although they're shocking, and we should all be concerned about them, they really um, hide the emotional harm um, that accompanies uh, these uh, medical errors because patients and families are affected in their real lives. Um, of course, some of them, unfortunately, die. Too many of them die. Many of them are injured um, and suffer debilitating um, uh, injuries uh, for life that, they're, they're, that they have to deal with and that their families have to deal with. They lose their jobs. Um, you know, the, the, the waves of harm are just enormous. And uh, families, and this is where you would fit into this equation, I'm sure, how you started the, uh, the, uh, the center, and it fits in with what I found out, and I shared some of it with our listeners for the first time last weekend, uh, many families have no idea that there's been a, a serious medical error that's taken place. Uh, and and uh, if they don't push, if they don't ask, or if the law doesn't require it, they never will. Is that true? Well, yes. Um, it's what, what we find um, is the second wave of harm when patients or families suspect that there has been um, an error um, that has led to death or injury. Um, they will seek answers, 
um, it's a natural thing for humans to want to understand what's happened. And what happens is with hospitals too often, um, they put up this wall of silence, this deny and defend culture, as they call it, quickly comes into play. Um, and patients and families just find that they're stonewalled. They don't get any answers. They're not treated with respect. Um, they'll say they, they, they aren't able to get anyone's attention. No one is listening to me. Um, and these are remarkably constant themes, uh, whether it's in Canada, the U.S., Australia, uh, New Zealand, the U.K. I hear from patients and families every day. In fact, I wake up to an inbox full of very, very sad and troubling stories, but they all have uh, the same themes underlying. And, and when we take a loved one to the hospital, we want to believe, and we do believe, that they're going to be getting the best of care and the best of attention, and they will be the sole focus of the medical professionals who are taking care of them. Now, I understand that hospitals are under tremendous stress and will be as population ages, more so, and maybe they're underfunded, although with $100 billion plus being spent on health care in Canada each calendar year, I don't know how you can be underfunded, but anyway, they, uh, they, the story is they are. And there are tremendous professionals who are in those hospitals. Maybe they're overworked and have too many patients. I, I don't know. But it's going on. It shouldn't be happening. And it shouldn't be that for the very first time in 2014, 2015, this kind of study is carried out. That, you know, how long has this been going on? Is, is 2014, 15 an aberration? Are those numbers high? Are they low? We don't know. At least I don't know from what I've been able to f- discern. Well, that's, that's part of the problem, uh, especially in Canada. Um, and one of the things that the Center for Patient Protection has been advocating for is the requirement that the legislated requirement that all hospitals publicly list the medical errors uh, that um, happen in their hospitals by type and frequency so that patients have um, the information that they need to, to be aware. I mean, in, uh, it's just true that if you want to be a safe patient, you have to be an informed patient. Right. Um, and that kind of information is, is, would be very helpful to patients and families. Well, you know, if you go to a restaurant, you can go online and you can check the consumer reviews of the restaurant. Similarly, there should be instantly available information on how significantly uh, uh, professional and, and, and successful a hospital is or how significantly challenged their procedures are for any particular um, incident or health issue. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. One of the places I called for information on the last segments that we aired, uh, the voicemail said, you can always go to www.blablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablablabl
Well, the coalition uh, has a core group of uh, different specialties. Uh, there's the um, radiologists, the cardiologists. We have a group of family physicians uh, from Doctors Ontario, another group of family physicians from Doctors for Justice. And then there's uh, the Coalition of Ontario Doctors, which is another large group of mixed uh, family physicians and specialists. What are your issues with the Wynn government? Uh, is it the unilateral cutting? Uh, I was reading on, uh, here we go back to the website, $1.8 billion from patient services since January 2015? It, it, it's a massive amount of drain on healthcare resources. Um, it, it, we've got a lot of issues with Wynn, uh, with the Wynn government. Uh, we have a lot of issues with uh, Minister Hoskins. And really what it is, is it's a systematic dismantling of healthcare in Ontario and a systematic bureaucratization of healthcare, none of which is good. Why? Uh, they have had a number of bills that they have uh, put through. They've put through Bill 41, right. which um, has uh, increased the powers and authority of the LINs and also multiplied them like rabbits. So the uh, the LINs, in case you know what they, in case you don't know what they do, and most people don't, including physicians, uh, they're kind of an arm's length agency that's supposed to govern healthcare. I can't be more precise than that. No one's quite sure what they do. But what we do know is that they cost $90 million a year, um, and they're going to double in size. So we've got a $90 million drain that no one's quite sure what they do, and they're going to increase it through Bill 41. So they sound just like uh, the electricity uh, delivery service of the Ontario government. Well, at least you get something with the electricity yeah. delivery. Somet- sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. So what's been cut? Basically, there has been the obvious cuts and the uh, under-the-radar cuts. And I've got to tell you, it's the under-the-radar cuts that are the most serious. So uh, much of what's been cut is physician compensation. And you'll say, okay, well, that's not a big deal. Physicians do pretty well. No, I wouldn't say that. Well, we'll we'll say that for argument's sake. I think part of what uh, the people who would would hold that argument... um, don't understand is that much of the funding that we we have to pay for our offices, we have to pay for our staff, our equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And as you reduce the amount of money coming in, uh, the services automatically must be reduced. It's 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 very simple math. There's so what's the what's it. the outcome? What happens? What's this? What's the effect on healthcare? What's the effect on doctors? We're losing doctors to other jurisdictions. Of course we are. I think uh, the, the the main loss of doctors are the younger ones who, who say, I'm not sure I want to practice in this system. The people who are well-established with their families, it's more of an effort for them to leave. Right. Uh, but you're losing you're, you're losing the new physicians. They, they're just choosing not to set up their practice. All right. How do we find out more about your, uh, about your coalition, Dr. Jacobs? Where do we go? Well, you can uh, just pop it into Google, and you'll see the Coalition of Ontario Doctors mm-hmm. and uh, and the messages that we have there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Okay. Uh, but uh, we'll be very vocal, and you'll you won't have to look hard for us. Very okay. soon. We're going to be. Uh, yeah. uh, it's going to be very obvious as to what our message is. Well, if I have to choose between the doctors and the government, the win government, you guys win every time. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for the time today. Thanks so much. All the best. Bye-bye. Dr. Jacobs from the Ontario Coalition of Doctors. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.